Well, friends, let's uh, turn once more to the words that we read there in Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2, and uh, reading verses 6 and 7. Luke 2, verses 6 and 7, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. In some Christian traditions, they have what's called a service of nine lessons and carols, and the opening Carol tends to be Cecil Alexander's Once in Royal David's City. The words that we've sung earlier, Once in Royal David's City stood a lowly cattle shed where a mother laid her baby in a manger for his bed. Mary was that mother, mild Jesus Christ, her little child. Well, this morning I want to focus on the events that happened once in Royal David's City, the city of Bethlehem, that first Christmas in Luke chapter And we're going to look at the opening seven verses under two headings, divine control and divine condescension. Divine control and then divine condescension. First you have divine control. Look at verses one to five. Here Luke draws our attention to the sovereign control of God. The sovereign control of God. Now, before going further, let's consider the events of the previous chapter. In verses 5 to 25, an angel appears to an old priest, Zechariah, and tells him that his wife, Elizabeth, is going to give birth to a son, John, who will turn many back to God. Verses 26 to 38, the same angel appears to a young girl, Mary, and tells her that she will give birth to a son. He will be given the name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High, and he will sit on the throne of David with a never-ending kingdom. In verses 39 to 56, Mary meets up with Elizabeth, and she proceeds to magnify God for what he has done, not only for what he has done for her, but for what he has done for his people. And in verses 57 to 80, Elizabeth gives birth to her son, and Zechariah praises God for his salvation, and he says that this child will give the knowledge of salvation to many. And in chapter 2, Luke brings us to a new development as he writes about the census of Caesar. Luke begins by telling us that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Verse 1. This man, Caesar Augustus, was the Roman emperor. His actual name was Octavian, but he was given the title Caesar, that is, Emperor Augustus, meaning the revered one, the majestic one, the highly esteemed one. He ruled ruled for about 41 years, and he ruled with an almost unimaginable, unparalleled degree of power. All political power was concentrated, centered, centralized on this one emperor, this one man, Caesar Augustus. And in Luke chapter 2, this powerful emperor issues a decree commanding all the world to be registered to have their names, their ages, their occupations put on a census. And there were at least three reasons for that census. Number one, the census would give the emperor and his administration details of all those who could be taxed. Number two, the census would give the emperor and his administration details of those who could be recruited into the Roman army. And number three, this census would remind all those living in the empire of who was really in control over their lives. Luke goes on to tell us that this decree went out when Quirinius was governor of Syria. 
This can be translated as this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. It can also be translated this was the census that went out before Quirinius was governor of Syria. And it makes better historical sense to take that second translation. Luke is really locating us at the time when Jesus uh, was born. It was during the reign of Caesar Augustus and it was just before Quirinius became governor of Syria. And Luke tells us that all went to be registered, each to his own town. Verse 3, the decree from the emperor has gone out and everyone follows the requirements of his command, regardless of how willing they were to do so. This census would have resulted in a huge upheaval for many, but the orders of Rome and the orders of her emperor were to be obeyed. When the emperor said, jump, the people had to ask, how high? In verses 4 and 5, we move from the census of Caesar to the city of David. We're told that Joseph went up from Nazareth to be registered in Bethlehem. Verse 4 in the beginning of verse 5. Joseph's already been mentioned in Luke chapter 1. He was the man who was pledged or betrothed to be married to Mary. And he leaves Nazareth in Galilee and he goes up to Bethlehem, the city or birthplace of David in Judea. Nazareth was an obscure village in the north of the land and Bethlehem was a small town in the south. There was about 80 miles separating the two and Joseph now makes this journey uh, in order to fill out his name on the census of Caesar. And Luke highlights this important detail that Joseph was from the lineage of David. We're also told that Mary was with him. Look at the end of verse 5. She is described here as being his betrothed. They're not married, but but they're more than engaged. They've not yet consummated their relationship physically, but the relationship can only be ended by divorce. And she's described not only as being his betrothed, but as being with child. The angel had told her back in chapter 1 that the Holy Spirit would come upon her, the power of the Most High would overshadow her, and she would, give, she would conceive in her womb. And now Mary is with child in fulfillment of what the angel had said, because as the angel told her, nothing is impossible with God. Now friends, as we consider these verses, we're being confronted with the sovereign control of God. The sovereign control of God. Mary has been told that she will give birth to the promised Messiah, the anointed and appointed deliverer, the great bringer of blessing. He's the one who will be great. He's the one who will be called the Son of the Most High. He's the one who will sit on the throne of David. He's the one who will reign over his people forever and will have a never-ending kingdom. These are magnificent truths, magnificent things for this young girl to hear. But there is one glaring and obvious problem. Do you know what it is? The prophet Micah, whom we're going to focus on this evening, had prophesied and predicted that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, the city of David. And Mary is living in Nazareth in the north. If the child whom Mary is carrying is to be the Messiah, then he must be born in Bethlehem. But how will this happen? Now you might say, well, she could take a taxi. You might say, well, she could take a, 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 a car. You might even say, well, she could take a pony. But, 
But a young peasant girl who is heavily pregnant can't just say at the drop of a hat, I'm going to Bethlehem 80 miles away. She didn't have the resources. She didn't have the means. She didn't even have the reason. She couldn't go to her boss. She couldn't go to Joseph and say, we've got to go to Bethlehem. It's impossible. And so God takes control of the situation. Proverbs 21 tells us that the the king's heart is a stream or channel in the hand of the Lord and he turns it wherever he wills. And in Luke chapter 2, God puts it on the mind of Caesar Augustus, puts it on the heart of the most powerful man on the face of the earth to conduct a census for his own selfish ends. And that census is the means by which Mary and Joseph have no other option but to leave Nazareth in the north and to go 80 miles to Bethlehem in the south. God uses Rome's emperor to ensure that his plans, his promises will be accomplished. And that is what this passage is teaching us. It's telling us that God is in control. And God is sovereign over every politician and every prime minister and every president. The men and women of Holyrood and Westminster can deny him and defy him all they like. But they can't stop him. They can't subdue him. They can only serve his gospel purposes, his redemptive purposes, his saving purposes. I don't know about you, friends, but I find that to be a tremendous encouragement today. I find that to be a tremendous source of comfort today, that God is in control. God is in control. Nicola Sturgeon and Boris Johnson, if by any chance you are listening on sermon audio today in the High Free Church live stream, I want you to hear this loud and clear. God is in control. John Piper has written, It is implicit in Scripture that all the mammoth political forces and all the giant industrial complexes, without their even knowing it, are being guided by God, not for their own sake, but for the sake of God's little people. God wields an empire to bless his children. Do not think because you experience adversity that the hand of the Lord is shortened. It is not our prosperity, but our holiness that he seeks with all his heart. And to that end, he rules the whole world. He is a big God for little people, and we have great cause to rejoice that unbeknownst to them, all the kings and presidents and premiers and chancellors of the world follow the sovereign decrees of our Father in heaven, that we, the children, might be conformed to the image of his Son, Jesus Christ. This morning I want to give each of you an early Christmas present. And that present is the reminder that God is in control. God is sovereign. Do you believe this? He is in control of everything going on in Hollywood and everything going on in your home. He is in control of all the goings on in London and all the goings on in Lewis. God is in control. God is in control. And I hope you hear that as a mantra today, over and over. Let my words around this echoey building echo in your hearts today. God is in control. God is in control. But we move from divine control to divine condescension. Look at verses 6 and 7. And here Luke now draws our attention to the sovereign condescension of God. 
Verse 6, Luke highlights the fullness of time. Mary and Joseph, we're told at the beginning of verse 6, are in Bethlehem. They've made the long and arduous journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. We're not given any details about their journey, but it would have been a slow one. It would have been a painful one for this heavily pregnant teenage girl. And at long last, they come to Bethlehem, the city of David. And while they're in Bethlehem, the time came for Mary to give birth. Verse 6. Now that is a biological statement. The angel had told Mary that she would give birth to a son. She would give birth. She would conceive in her womb. And now Luke is saying that all the, the term for her completion is there. That she, the time has come for her to give birth. These nine months have now passed and she is going to give birth to this child. But it's more than a biological statement. It is a theological statement. Do you remember last week we looked at Genesis 3 in the evening and we saw God making this great promise that that a seed would come who would crush the head of the serpent and restore this broken creation. And God had given promise after promise throughout the Old Testament that this would actually happen, that a saviour, a deliverer would come. And here Luke is saying that time has come. The promised deliverer has now here. The time has arrived for him to be born. The time has come for his mother to give birth. The time has come for the entrance of the deliverer promised thousands of years before to enter into this world. The time has come. We move from the fullness of time though to the firstborn son. Look at verse 7. Luke tells us that Mary gave birth. When I was in Thurso, I was very friendly with two doctors. And these two doctors were Christians, but they were very different. One, one would give you every detail of every medical condition and every medical procedure. The other would tell you hardly anything. He was far more restrained. The one who would tell you everything was a Baptist. The one who wouldn't tell you anything was a free church man. I wonder if that says something. Maybe it doesn't. But anyway... Luke is very much like that second doctor. He is very restrained in what he says. He could have said so much about this birth, but all he says is that Mary gave birth. That's all he says. A few years ago, Andrew Peterson created a vivid picture of the scene in his song, Labour of Love, where he sang, It was not a silent night, there was blood on the ground, you could hear a woman cry in the alleyways that night on the streets of David's town. And the stable wasn't clean and the cobblestones were cold and little Mary, full of grace with the tears upon her face, had no mother's hand to hold. It was a labour of pain, it was a cold sky above, but for the girl on the ground in the dark, with every beat of her beautiful heart, it was a labour of love. Think of what she's going through and it's all summed up in that word. The time came for her to give birth. And Luke goes on and he tells her that Mary gave birth to her firstborn son. Over the centuries there have been those who have claimed that Mary remained a perpetual virgin. That Jesus was her only son. But that is not what the scriptures teach. The scriptures make it clear that Jesus was Mary's firstborn son. Later on, we'll meet his brothers and his sisters, people who marry into the local community, people who don't even understand who he is. Sons and daughters born to Mary and to Joseph, but Jesus is Mary's firstborn. And Luke goes even further as he tells us that she wrapped him in swaddling cloths. These were strips of cloth that would be wrapped tightly around a child. 
they were wrapped around the child to keep the child warm, but they were also wrapped tightly around the child to keep the child's limbs from bending over. They were to keep the limbs of the child straight. You know, a day would come, and we'll see this later in Luke's Gospel, when Mary will have to look on as her son, her firstborn son, is wrapped in strips of linen and laid in a tomb, and her soul will be pierced as this happens. But for now, that day is a long way away. She has no conception that she is going to have to watch her son being torn from a Roman cross and wrapped in strips of linen again. All she can see is this little boy, and she's so filled with joy and wonder that she wraps him in these strips of linen, these swaddling cloths. And Luke goes even further as he tells us that Mary laid him in a manger, a feeding trough for animals. You know, just imagine the scene. Here's this teenage girl. She's about 14 or 15. And she's just given birth. And she's tired. She's exhausted. Her little body is in pain. And despite her condition, she wraps her child in these cloths and she lays him in a manger because there is no one else to help. No one else to assist. Now, no doubt Joseph would have done what he could, but a first century Jewish man would have had no proper experience of what happened at childbirth. He wouldn't have known what to do. And finally, Luke tells us that this child was laid in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, this is where we need to dispense with the images that we might have from our Christmas cards and Christmas carols and to look at what the Bible actually says. This word inn can refer to a guest room. Luke uses it in chapter 22, verse 11, where he speaks about Jesus and disciples eating the Passover, the Last Supper, in a guest room. And most first century Jewish homes would have had two rooms. There was a guest room and there was the common room where the family would eat and where they would sleep. And at the very end of the common room, at a slightly lower level, was a place where animals would be kept and where animals would be fed. And here's Luke. And he's telling us that it was in this feeding area for animals in which Jesus is born. Luke tells us that Jesus was born in the lowest part of a family home because there was no place for them in the guest room. Some other person, some other family has taken precedence and priority over Jesus on that first Christmas. Well, friends, as we consider these verses, we're being confronted with the sovereign condescension of God. The sovereign condescension of God. Luke is presenting his readers with the humanity of Jesus as he records this narrative. You know, this is the Son of the Most High. This is the second person of the Trinity. This is the creator of the universe. And Luke is showing us that he entered the world just like every other person. He was born. And following his birth, he was wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a manger. In his book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer writes, God became man. The divine son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. Doesn't this blow your minds? 
that here is the Son of God upholding the universe by the word of his power, and he's needing to be taught to talk. That, that blows our minds. A little later, Parker makes this comment. The word became flesh, a real human baby. He had not ceased to be God. He was no less God than before, but he had begun to be man. He was not now God minus some elements of his deity, but God plus all that he had made his own by taking manhood to himself. He who made man was now learning what it felt like to be man. He who made the angel who became the devil was now in a state in which he could be tempted. This is the wonder and the glory of Christmas. God becoming man. God taking on human flesh so that he might save those who sin and might sympathize with those who struggle and those who suffer. The wonder and the glory of Christmas is that the one who was lying in the manger is fully God and fully man. Not half man and half God. Not 98% man and 2% God or 98% God and 2% man. No, he is fully God, 100% God and 100% man. He's the God-man. But Luke is also presenting his readers not only with the humanity of Jesus, but also with the humiliation of Jesus as he records this narrative. He, he wasn't born in the palace of Caesar Augustus. He wasn't born in the headquarters of Governor Quirinius. He was born in a feeding place for animals because there was no room for him or his family in the home of some unknown family in Bethlehem. And the first bed that he ever slept in, it wasn't a crib of gold or ivory with warm blankets and soft pillows. It was a manger, a feeding trough for animals. And from this very humble beginning, it will be a life of ever-increasing humiliation. His life will be a steady spiral of greater and greater humiliation as he does everything necessary undertakes every duty required to save his people, no matter the cost to himself. The Shorter Catechism puts it this way. Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born, that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God and the cursed death of the cross, in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. This, friends, is what Luke wants us, his readers, to see and to never lose sight of. As he begins to tell us the good news about Jesus, he wants us to see that Jesus is the one who walked a path of humiliation. And he walked that path of humiliation for his people. Well, I began by saying that the opening carol in a nine lessons and carol service is normally once in Royal David City. The closing carol tends to be, O come, all ye faithful. Don't you love the soaring and surging chorus? O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. We worship Jesus. At least I hope you're here to worship Jesus. We worship Jesus. We adore Jesus because he is the Christ. He is the Lord. But we also worship Jesus. We adore Jesus because he's the God of infinite condescension. He became human. Fully God, but also fully man. He walked the path of humiliation 
all the way to death, even death on a cross. And he became man and walked the path of humiliation to save his people. To save his people. So friends, will we come and adore him? Come and adore him. Not come and just mull over him. Not just come and open our mouths and sing some songs that we're all so familiar with. Not come because we feel we have to be in church on the last Sunday before Christmas, but rather, will we come and adore him? And not only today, but also over this Christmas season and over the days that lie ahead. Let's come and adore the one who is in full divine control and also the one of such divine condescension.